Good morning to you all. Come on here. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 2. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that very much. We're going to eventually get back to uh, John chapter 1, but I'd like to start in Luke chapter 2. I'd like to encourage you, uh, with regard to your own Bible reading, um, the Bible has been given to us to be a guide, and it's a guide from God uh, to enable us to answer the most important questions we need to answer. And three of the most important questions to answer are, number one, what will you do about your guilt? Because we all have guilt. The second question is, what will you pursue as your supreme good, which you think will make you truly happy? Then thirdly, the question is, what will be the goal of your life practically every day? What will be your pursuit? And the answer to those three questions ultimately answer the most important question, which is, who or what is your God? And the Bible has been given to us that we might be able to answer those questions in a saving way, that we might be able to answer those questions with the right answer. And so the first question about our guilt is very much about what we're going to talk about this morning as we continue talking about the wonder of Christmas. Last week we talked about the fact that the wonder of Christmas is that the divine nature added the human nature to itself without becoming less God or less human. And Jesus, the God-man, came into the world. That's a huge wonder, as C.S. Lewis said. It's the wonder that uh, makes all the other miracles make sense and gives meaning to all the other miracles and provides for them, in a sense. The wonder that we're going to talk about today is the wonder that God would actually provide a Savior for sinners who only deserve his judgment. That is truly the wonder of Christmas. So if you would, look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read again a very familiar passage, but very important for us to meditate on and think about this Christmas again. In verse 1 of Luke 2, it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child." While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened." But the Lord said, to the, excuse me, the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. If you would turn to John 1 again. We started there last week and want to continue looking at John 1 because I'm basically trying to expound for us verse 12 especially. And so we're looking at the context in John 1, but we're also looking at the other aspects of the story of the incarnation from the other gospels to try to understand more deeply what is being said in verse 12. So picking up in verse 9, of John chapter 1, it says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Then if you would look at verse 29, it goes on in this chapter to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist. And in verse 29, it says, Then the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it goes on from there uh, to verses 35 and 36. Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so when we think about Christmas, we need to think about what John the Baptist is saying here. It's a call to behold the Lamb of God and the baby born in the manger and in the man who lived his life for us. So the encouragements that I'm trying uh, to give us this Christmas, the one last week was, don't forget the name on the manger, so to speak, or in the manger, so to speak. This week I want to talk about, don't forget that receiving is believing. Let me just remind you, looking again at verse 12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And last week we focused on the issue of the name. Um, If indeed it's important to understand uh, who Jesus is, then there's a sense in which we're wanting to understand what is the name on the manger? What child is this truly that is in the manger? And we talked about the fact that Sometimes we think about names just as labels to distinguish one person from another, almost like, uh, you know, names on a on a series of mailboxes. OK, this is so and so's mailbox and this is so and so's mailbox. But in the Bible, the name is much more about the person. 
It's kind of like in the uh, story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The dwarves have names. Those names are meant to communicate something about them, right? And so you've got Sleepy and Sneezy and Dopey and Grumpy and all these dwarves. And so if you're having coffee with Grumpy, what should, should you expect? A lot of complaining, a lot of grumpiness. If you're having coffee with Sleepy, what should you expect? Sleepy, wake up, wake up. So when it says that we are to believe in the name of Jesus, then it is actually saying there's something you ought to expect about this person and from this person. That if you actually have a relationship with this person, this is what that relationship is going to look like because of who they are and what they are. If you trust this person, this is what you should expect from them, is what you can expect from them. If you trust grumpy, you should expect grumpiness. If you trust sleepy, you should expect someone who's checked out most of the time. So what should you expect if you trust this baby in the manger who grew up to be the God-man, Jesus Christ? And so that's what we try to start beginning to think about. We'll think about that more today. But what we talked about last week was that in the Old Testament, it talks about Yahweh, uh, where God reveals himself as I am to Moses. Um, and the Bible says that uh, I that God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner, our victory, and all those various names about who he is. And the reality is the God of the Old Testament is the God in the manger. God of the Old Testament, who revealed himself in all those ways as Yahweh or Jehovah this, Jehovah that, is the baby in the manger. And what we see John talking about when he says the word became flesh is he's saying this person who was born in the manger and grew up to be the man, Jesus Christ, reveals what is unseen. He reveals the unseen God. The only way you can know what I'm thinking is if you can see it. And how do you see it? Well, you see it as I speak. Jesus is the spoken word of God, so to speak. He is God um, audibly and visually revealed to us. And he's the God of the Old Testament. Sometimes you think there's a disconnect there. That Jesus can't be the God of the Old Testament. That seems too different. Well, then we're not reading our Old Testament properly if we don't see that Jesus is the revelation of the very God revealed in the Old Testament. And then we highlighted the aspect of love, and we're going to do that again today uh, as we talk about um, the name and believing in the name. But let me just go ahead and highlight for us something else in this verse, in verse 12. We focused on the name last week. Today I want to focus on the idea of receiving. Because it says... But as many as received him, and the context is he came to his world that he made and they didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, the Jews, and they did not receive him, but there were a few who did. And as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Which means the receiving is about believing. You don't receive Jesus unless you believe in Jesus. You believe in his name. That's why who he is and what he is is so important because 
That's what we're called to believe. And so I want to think about that because we may ask ourselves, you know, how do we really celebrate Christmas? And that's one of the things we talk about in our own family is what are we going to do practically? You know, how are we going to work out spending time with family and how are we going to organize all that we want to get done and involve people and things like that? And there's no doubt that there's nothing wrong with all of those things, as long as we don't forget Jesus in the midst of all those things. Uh, I read an article uh, just recently where this man is talking about the history of Christmas. And he says, if you look at the first 300 years of Christian history, virtually no one celebrated Christmas. In fact, they certainly didn't identify December 25th as the birthday of Jesus. And so there may be a, may have been a few that in some sense uh, celebrated the birth of Jesus, but it's nothing like what we see later on in history. Not until the fourth century when a bishop of Rome actually designated December 25th as Christmas. And he picked, at least in part, uh, December 25th as the day or other considerations. But this man said part of the consideration was it was the darkest day in the Julian calendar, darkest day in terms of the season of the year. And they're going to celebrate the great light on the darkest day of the year. But after that, after the fourth century, you have all kinds of people celebrating Christmas. And someone wrote a book called The Battle for Christmas, and they described the way that a lot of people celebrated Christmas. They said, It involved behavior that most of us would find offensive and even shocking today. Rowdy public displays of eating and drinking, the mockery of established authority, aggressive begging, often involving the threat of doing harm, and even the invasion of wealthy homes. Christmas was a season of misrule, a time when ordinary behavioral restraints could be violated with impunity. In other words, it was a time for... Um, license, you'd say, debauchery. We're just going to do what we want to do. And interestingly enough, for a long time, that seemed to characterize a lot of people's celebration of Christmas. So much so that someone has said the first English Christmas carol was actually a drinking song. And uh, a pastor, a well-known pastor, uh, said during that period of time, He warned his congregation about feasting to excess and about wild dancing, and he urged them to approach Christmas after a heavenly and not an earthly manner. And it was just that context in which the Puritans banned Christmas in England and here in places in the U.S. That is why they said you are not allowed, it's illegal to celebrate Christmas because of that very context. And that's why um, lawmakers, English lawmakers in 1644 did what they did because they said they lamented how Christmas was a day pretending the memory of Christ in which, in fact, what was displayed was extreme forgetfulness of him. And so that's the context of what was going on then. But then about 200 years ago, things began to change. Christmas began to become a little more tame and uh, it began to look more like what we celebrate today. They began using Christmas trees on a regular basis. 
gifts for children became more prevalent and they started talking about things like St. Nicholas and his eight reindeer in the early uh, 19th century. And there was a book back in 1852 that had two pictures in it. One was entitled Old Christmas Festivities, where it portrayed what I just described to you, uh, rowdy men eating, drinking, and dancing. Then it had another picture called The Christmas Tree, in which there were women and children sitting around a decorated Christmas tree. And so you've got that reality, and yet people would look at that and say, that picture of holiday cheer wasn't necessarily less forgetful of Jesus. It was just different in its forgetfulness of Jesus. And now you you come to our day and time, the 20th century, which isn't necessarily um, in general uh, the debauched celebration that it used to be. Uh, It's certainly still a holiday cheer celebration, but it's definitely big business. It's very commercialized. And so obviously you've got a lot of emphasis on buying and the bustle of buying, and as C.S. Lewis called, the commercial racket. Now, I take the time to talk about that simply to say that there's a lot of ways in which we celebrate Christmas that miss the whole point if Christ is forgotten. If we don't really understand the name on the manger and the name in the manger, the person in the manger, we have to be careful of making sure that we've truly received the gift that we just sang about so beautifully. And so the second point is simply to understand that receiving is believing and believing is trusting. Sometimes we think about believing in very superficial superficial ways, and we need to think about it in very um, deep, thoughtful ways. There's um, a story about um, a man who lived in the 1800s who some of you may have heard of named Charles Blondin, who became famous. He was a Frenchman who came to the United States and he was a tightrope walker. I looked this up to make sure it was really true. And evidently he crossed uh, Niagara, the Niagara, Niagara excuse me, River uh, several different times on a tightrope. And he even did it blindfolded, did it on stilts and carrying a man on his back. And so he was known for uh, doing this very dangerous thing. And at one point, he even rolled a wheelbarrow across uh, this tightrope across the Niagara River. And then he said, how many of you believe that I could put a person in this wheelbarrow and push them across the falls. And everybody said, yes, yes, we believe, we believe. And he said, okay, who's going to be the first one to get in? And you've probably heard that before. Nobody volunteered, except for, I think, maybe his agent, who figured he had to if he wanted to keep this guy going. But what is going on there? The Protestant reformers said there are three things that all true saving faith includes. It includes, number one, knowledge. You have to know what the gospel is. You can't put your faith in something you don't even know or know anything about. The second thing that they said faith included, true saving faith, is basically the conviction that it's true. That you know what the gospel is and you 
would say, yeah, I believe it's true. Which is sort of like what these people would say when they say, I believe it's true that you can wheel a man across the Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow on that tightrope. I believe you can do that. I think that's a true statement that you can do that. But the third aspect of saving faith is trust, which means actually relying on Jesus. It's one thing to say, I know Jesus has been supposedly, you know, the, the savior of the world. And I may, some may even say, yeah, I believe that's true. The question is, have you got in the wheelbarrow? Have you basically put your life in his hands? Because that's what you would have been doing if you got into the wheelbarrow with Charles Blondin. You would have been putting your life in his hands, staking your life on what you say you believe. And that is true saving faith. That will stake its life on what it says it believes. And so in John 1.12, when it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It's the idea of knowing who he proclaims himself to be and be willing to stake your life on what he says he is, who he says he is. And that's all based on the word of God. Um, there's a story in the Old Testament about Naaman. Naaman's uh, not a part of Israel, um, but he finds out about Elisha. He's contracted leprosy. He wants to be healed. And he's, so he goes to Elisha. And Elisha sends a servant to him uh, outside of his house and tells him to go to the Jordan River and dip seven times and you'll be clean. And Naaman becomes very, very angry. He says, I thought the the prophet would come out and wave his hands and make a big deal and heal me. And why should I dip in the Jordan? Because there are rivers in my home land that are just as good or better. And his servants said, if the prophet had told you to do something you know, great and hard, wouldn't you have done it just to be clean? And he realized that he should just simply take the man at his word. And so the Bible says, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. Basically, he believed the word of God. And that's what it comes down to is when we read these stories about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, this is the word of God to us. And the question is, do we believe the word of God? If we believe the word of God, then we will stake our life on it. And the Bible says we will be clean. We will be clean of the guilt of our lives. Faith relies on the word of God to the point that it's willing to put its life in the hands of God. It says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 6, 29 says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you want to know what God's up to in your life, that you would believe in Jesus. In terms of coming to him for mercy and receiving him, but also in terms of every day of your Christian life, resting in him, relying on him, 
and rejoicing in him. That is the work of God in my life and in your life, that you would believe in Jesus in every situation in your life. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son sees who and what he really is and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus says, And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so the point of John 1.12 is that belief isn't simply knowing about Jesus. It's not even simply saying, Yeah, I believe he was who he said he was. It's actually trusting him for who he says he is. And last week we talked about the different names in the Old Testament, about Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Nissi and those various names. Well, Jesus himself uh, basically does the same thing in his ministry. And it's recorded in the Gospel of John when seven different times he says, I am this or I am that. And he's revealing to us his name, just like, Yahweh did in the Old Testament, and he's telling us what we're to trust him for. It's not just that we believe in Jesus. The question is, what am I trusting him for? What do I believe that he's going to be for me personally, and that I'm relying, I'm staking my whole life on whether or not he is what he says he is for me every day of my life. And so the first thing he says um, in John 6.35 is, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The context of that is he fed the 5,000, and they were chasing him around trying to get more free meals. And Jesus said, don't pursue the the bread that is just physical, but pursue what will really satisfy you. And he says, By the way, that's me. And so the idea of trusting Jesus as your bread is first and foremost, trusting him for the satisfaction of your soul. That you don't need anybody else or anything else to have what you need and to have what your heart desires. And that is meant to free you up to love the people in your life. That is to free you up to be poor or rich or somewhere in between, to be healthy or to be sick, to be in an easy job or in a hard job. Because in Jesus, you have the satisfaction of all that you need and all that you long for. Secondly, he says in John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The context of that is uh, the religious leaders were trying to arrest him, and the officers were so amazed at how he spoke that they didn't arrest him. They said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. And the context is also a woman caught in adultery, where Jesus at the end says, I do not condemn you. And then he goes on from there in the context to say, if you knew me, you would know my father also. And so if you put the whole context together, what you see is, you see Jesus revealing, being shedding light on who God really is. He's a God who is eager to show mercy, 
and slow to show judgment. It's God who is tremendously merciful. Jesus came to be the light of the world to show us what God the Father truly is like. Like He is the truth. That's what the truth is. It sheds light on who and what God really is. And the question is, when I read my Bible, do I, do I read it through the lens of Jesus? Do I read my Old Testament and understand that that's Jesus and I need to understand it that way? That when I pray, that I'm praying to the God revealed in the person of Jesus. Not necessarily the person acting on the chosen or any other movie we've seen or any other idea of Jesus we might have. But the Jesus revealed in the Bible Do I really see God as being who and what is revealed in Jesus? Or when I say, you know, the God that I think about a lot of times doesn't seem to match up to the Jesus I find in the Bible because Jesus seems nicer. Jesus seems more merciful and gracious. And I don't always see God that way. It really makes a difference whether or not we receive him as the light that he says that he truly is. In John 10, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The picture there is the picture of being a shepherd and a shepherd who is basically taking care of the sheep and leading them into the safety of the pen and letting them out into the, the nourishment of the pasture. So that whatever they need, he is the door for that. It's a picture of fellowship, basically. And so you've got the picture of satisfaction, the picture of truth, and now the picture of fellowship. And the question is, do I believe that Jesus is the key to my fellowship with God and that I can trust that through him I will be able to fellowship with God now and forever, no matter how bad my day is, no matter what my sin is, my fellowship with God is based on Jesus. Also in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So in one sense, the good shepherd is leading us into the good pastures. But here it says he lays down his life for the sheep, which is a picture of substitution. Instead of letting the sheep be killed by the wolf, The shepherd says, I will let the wolf kill me. The wolf is obviously a picture of Satan who steals and kills and destroys. And Jesus steps in and allows himself to be killed that we might be saved. And so the question is, am I trusting Jesus to be my substitution? That his death was my death so that I don't have to bear the wrath of God. In John eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. In the context of that is Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says, if you want life after death, trust me. And so are you trusting Jesus for life after death? Certainly the resurrection of the body but ultimately the enjoyment of everything that God promises in the new heaven and the new earth. 
John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The context of that is the upper room. He's telling his disciples that he's leaving. And he says, you know where I'm going. And uh, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. and We don't know how to get there. And Jesus says, I am the way to where I'm going. I am the truth about all that there is there and about the God who is there. And I am the life. I am the one who will satisfy you with God. And so basically it's the idea of acceptance. Am I trusting Jesus for my acceptance with God? Or am I trusting my to-do list? Okay, I've had my quiet time. I was pretty patient with my wife today. I've gone to church all this month. What am I trusting for my acceptance with God? Is it Jesus or is it my to-do list? He said, finally, seventhly, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you really believe that? Believe you can't do anything apart from Jesus? If we really believe that, we'd probably pray a little more than we do. We'd probably be in our Bible a little more than we are. We'd probably seek him more diligently um, if we really believe that. But Jesus says that's really the truth. He's gracious and he gives us things even when we don't ask him. And he blesses us even when we don't seek him. But the principle is still there that we have not because we ask not. And he says, I am the vine, which means... In the context, he's telling his disciples, I'm, I'm leaving, but let me tell you how to handle the fact that I'm leaving. That if you abide in me, if you continue in my word, um, I will be with you in terms of experientially. I'm going to be with you anyway, but you're going to experience me in greater, deeper, richer ways than you're experiencing me now. It's actually better that I leave. Because I will send the Holy Spirit and I will be with you in great and wonderful ways. And so it's a picture of enabling that we're to trust him to enable us in every situation. There are things that uh, terrify me. I think about persecuted believers and I think, what if I had to go through that? That terrifies me. What would Jesus say to that? He say, trust me. I am the vine. You're right. You can't handle that on your own, but I can enable you to handle anything. So you don't have to be afraid. So when when the angel said, do not be afraid, there's good news. There's a savior. It means all of that. It means more than we fully can imagine in terms of everything we need, everything we could desire in the person of Jesus, And that's why the song, um, Mary, did you know, help, uh, paints this very uh, wonderfully when it says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. The I am of the Old Testament and I am of the New Testament. That's who Jesus is. That's the name on the manger. But it highlights 
that Jesus is heaven's perfect lamb. And that's what we read in John chapter 1, 2, is that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and in a sense said, the name on the, la- on the manger is Lamb of God. And I want to highlight this because we are especially in receiving Jesus to trust him as the official savior of the world. And I want to encourage you to think about something that you may not have thought about before. When we talk about the whole idea of guilt, that is the most fundamental issue for all of us. Because if our sin issue isn't dealt with, we will not enjoy heaven and eternity with God. We will suffer a just punishment in hell. If our sin is not forgiven and wiped away and cleansed. And the only way is through the Savior of the world. And one of the interesting things is that the Puritans talked about the reality of the Lamb of God, who is the Savior of the world, in terms of saying that God at Christmas showed his goodwill toward all men and did a good deed toward all men. Last week I talked about the fact that R.C. Sproul says that theologians have talked for a long time about three um, kinds of God's love, the love of uh, benevolence, the love of beneficence, and the love of complacency. Last week we talked about the love of benevolence, which means God actually has a good will toward men. When it says in the New King James Version, peace on earth, good will toward men, that is truly what Christmas is meant to communicate. Because the reality is, you would expect God to simply be ready to wipe us all out because we're all naturally rebels against God who deserve his just punishment. And yet God has good will toward rebels who mock him and deny him and spit in his face. But he has good will. He desires their salvation. And it's not only a matter of good will, but it's a matter, matter of beneficence or benefit, that God actually does something good. Now, the Bible talks about the fact that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, gives the sunshine to the just and the unjust. In that sense, he benefits all people, even those who don't want anything to do with him. But the ultimate benefit, the ultimate Uh, love of God toward all people was the provision of a savior. And the Puritans would talk about the fact that what happened in the incarnation was God filled the um, office of savior with the person of his son. Just like if you were to uh, go downtown and you've got this office that says mayor on the door. You have to open the door and find out who's in there. Okay, who is the mayor on the door? It's like there's this uh, room in the universe and it's got savior of the world on the door. And you open the door and you find out, okay, who's in that office? And the Christmas story is that God has put his own son in that office that he is the savior of the world, that he has been provided by God for all men to look to. 
That's the point of Luke 2 when the angel says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. One of the foremost Puritans was Thomas Boston. And he said this, he says, It is the great truth and testimony of the gospel that the Father has sent his Son, Jesus Christ, in, a, in the character of Savior of the world. He said, Even so the Savior's birth is said to be good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, Luke 2.10, which it could not have been if he had not been a Savior to all people. This is his office. He is held up as Savior to all sinners generally, not to this or that sort of sinner, but to all sinners of mankind indefinitely, without exception. The ground on which Christ is constituted Savior of the world is nothing but the infinite sufficiency of the merit of his death and sufferings. He says, you may wholly trust him to save you from sin and wrath, for he was, a, he was sent by the Father as, a, say, as the Savior of the world. And if by the Father's appointment he is Savior of the world, he is by office your Savior and my Savior, since we are members of that world of mankind. He goes on and says, Know with certainty that if any of you shall perish, and if you go on in your sins, you will perish, you shall not perish for lack of a Savior. There is no Savior besides Christ. Moreover, he is able to save you. He is willing to save you. The only thing lacking is your willingness to be saved. It says in John 4.14, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And Thomas Boston uses a couple of illustrations. He talks about John 3.16 and how John talks about the fact that Moses lifted a serpent up on a standard. He said, if anyone gets bitten by a serpent, if he simply looks to this serpent on the standard, he will be saved. That standard was raised for anyone and everyone to look to, even if they didn't look, even if they refused to look. He also uses the illustration of the wedding feast thrown by a king for his son in Matthew 22, in which the king gives a uh, prepares a feast and he invites people to come and they say no we don't want to come and he keeps sending out his servants and he tells them to say tell those who have been invited behold i've prepared my dinner my oxen and my fattened livestock and all butchered excuse me are all butchered and everything is ready come to the wedding feast some came and some didn't but the feast was already prepared. It was ready. And he uses those two illustrations to say that's what God has done in putting Jesus in the office of Savior of the world. He has done everything needed for the salvation of all mankind. It is sufficient for all. And he is able to save all those who come to him for salvation. And so finally, what does that mean? You wrap up here. It means if one aspect of the love of God is that he has goodwill toward men and he does good deeds even to those who don't deserve it. And the ultimate good deed that God has done toward the world is to provide a savior 
It means God does love all men and that he has provided a savior for all. That means he's provided a savior for you and me. That's the good news of Christmas. That's what it means to believe in his name, that his name is Savior of the world. So if we were the the, uh, shepherds on the night that the angels said what they said and they went to Bethlehem and they saw the manger, which is actually a feeding trough. Let's say there were names on the manger identifying what child is this. They should have seen, based on what the angels said, which was what God was saying to them, they should have seen goodwill to you from God. A savior for you from God. The message of Christmas is, it's a very personal message. It says to every one of us, God has goodwill towards us. He has provided a savior for us, for you and for me. That is a real thing. It's not just words. That's a reality that God has provided. And that's why Linus and Charlie Brown Christmas reads Luke 2 after Charlie Brown has said, what is Christmas all about? He reads Luke 2 and he says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie. That's what Christmas is all about. If we miss the fact that God has provided a Savior for us personally, if we miss that, forget that, then we're not truly celebrating Christmas. We need to receive that reality. We need to rest in it, rely on it, rejoice in it. That's why I love um, the song, O Come All You Unfaithful, which I think Jan and Melody sang last year. Uh, I love that song because I think it communicates exactly what we find in Luke 2. And I'll conclude with this. It says, I'll remind you, O come all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone. O come barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come. See what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. O come bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken, come taste of his perfect love. O come guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. O come and see, Christ is born for you. That's what it means to celebrate Christmas truly. Family get-togethers, giving gifts are all wonderful things. But I pray that we would not forget Christ. And if you've never received that gift, I urge you to believe that he gave that gift to you. Not all receive the gift, but it starts with believing that that gift was given to you, for you, from a heart that says, I desire to be reconciled to you. 
I love you and I'll receive you. Receive my son as a gift to you. And for those who have received the gift, the question is, in the midst of all the things we've talked about in the sharing time and all the stresses of this season, are we resting in that Savior? Are we relying on that Savior who said, I am all you need and all you desire? And are we rejoicing, as as Amal said so eloquently, are we rejoicing in that Savior this Christmas season? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of great joy that a Savior has been given to us. And his name is Christ the Lord. May we receive that, believe that, rejoice in that, rest in that, rely on that. And may you be glorified in our hearts and our lives during this Christmas season. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.